Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with my friend and New York Times bestselling author, Bakari Sellers, about his terrific memoir, My Vanishing Country. Bakari was named Time Magazine's 40 Under 40 Rising Stars in American Politics and 50 People to Watch in Politico's uh, 50 Rising Stars. He is, in fact, a rising star. I think he has risen already. Um, he is the son of civil rights icon Cleveland Sellers and was elected to the South Carolina State Legislature at the ripe old age of 22, at the time being the youngest elected African-American state legislator in the country. So, Bakari, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm glad we were able to work it out, and I'm glad we're here in our final week of 2020. Yeah, yeah. 2021 promises to be different than 2020, I hope. Well, let's just say it's going to be different. Okay. Yeah. So your, your, your book, a memoir, a 35-year-old writing memoir, which is, is, is a great read. I, I loved it. And I, I'm going to show the audience what I love maybe the most about the book, which is they say you can't judge a book by its cover. But, but this cover, this photo of, of you, how, how old? I was six years old. I was uh, on my way to summer basketball. Uh, that's in front of the house I grew up on in, and uh, it was on 633 Frederick Street in Denmark, South Carolina. I love that picture. I love that picture. And we'll talk about your mission and, 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 and calling and stuff. But those eyes, uh, you know, sort of are, they, 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 they have a direction. This is a, this is a child who who who's going somewhere. I don't know where at the time you were going, but you were going somewhere. Yeah, they had an innocence too that I don't know if you can re regain. Um, but uh, that picture just mean it means so much. And my son, um, who you may hear from or see after their nap, uh, looks eerily like that picture as well. So it, it runs in the family tree. Yeah, so we're actually hoping that uh, Stokely and Sadie will 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 make an appearance. In fact. Principally, the reason I wanted to speak to you was that they would they would join on. <laughs> I get that enough. So they yeah. you may have your wish. They they yeah. they are winding down their nap. I'm sure. That's right. So why don't we start um, <clears throat> by having you tell us about your childhood, growing up in in Denmark, um, South Dakota, and and sort of what it was what it was like to be a country kid. Michael, you put me in South Dakota. You mean South Carolina? South South Carolina. Did I say South Dakota? South Carolina. <laughs> big difference. Sorry. It, it, is a, it is a big difference. Uh, so Denmark was a, a small town, small rural town, where we had um, three whole stoplights and a blinking light, um, where, um, you know, that, that rural environment that you hear about is one that I grew up in. And one of the things about this book that I tried to flip on its head were those um, um, uh, preconceived notions that rural meant white or working class meant white because I wanted to give a voice to those uh, rural working class people of color. Um, and, um, you know, it's it, Denmark was unique um, in that our economic development was uh, the new McDonald's that was built after CAFTA and NAFTA in the early 90s. Um, we lost many of our manufacturing and textile jobs, like many of the places throughout the South. Um, lost our hospital in about 2010. Um, it's a city that didn't necessarily have potable water. It's one of those cities a lot like um, uh, Flint, Michigan. And, you know, there are 100 cities that have, high, that have less potable water than even Flint. Uh, Denmark was one of those cities. Um, you know, it, it was a very poor town, but uh, we didn't know what we didn't have. And um, we were, we were, uh, we called it God's country. Um, it was where we were divided by a track. Uniquely enough, though, Michael, Denmark was one of those cities that um, its economic engine was spurred because we had, um, we had railroad tracks that went north, south, east, and west, which was extremely rare. Um, and then Norfolk Southern and CSX picked up their railroad tracks, and that actually started the downward economic spiral of our city. Um, and so it, it's one where everybody was related. We all knew like the old cheers. Everybody knows everybody's name. Um, and it was a, it was a fascinating city to grow up in and one that unfortunately, uh, is no longer growing even stagnantly, but declining. 
Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about the impact of of NAFTA on um, South Carolina and, and particularly the the agriculture and textile um, components of it when we get to to um, that part of the conversation. But what I found interesting um, was that you you had a, a a posse, you had a a group of friends um, who sort of have remained lifelong friends um, of yours <clears throat> through through all all forms of your the iterations of your life. But I liked particularly when you were talking about when you were a kid the uh, the playing the dozens or or jiving um, and how that sort of informed your ability to to talk because you're a great talker. But maybe you can give us the the history of that a little bit. So jiving is is where we, uh, you know, jiving, uh, the dozens, uh, all of these other things that, that people may know them from. It's it's readily known as just picking on each other, for lack of a better term. Um, but it helped you with your wit. Uh, it helped you navigate different circumstances. It helped you. Uh, it helps you on CNN. It helps you in the courtroom as a lawyer. Um, all of these things. Um, and so jiving was... Um, uh, what, what I got exposed to is being on the other end of it very early on. Um, I, one of my good friends who you're referring to is Jared Lodehull. He's still my, my best friend today. We, we talk often. He actually executive produces my podcast. Um, and we, uh, you know, when I, the first day I saw him in ninth grade, he just went in on me. Um, and it's, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not meant to, uh, it, it's not necessarily meant to scar, um, it might sting a little bit, um, but it's a, it's a verbal jousting, which is, it goes all the way back to, um, it goes all the way back to, to age old times in the African-American community. Yeah. But the thing that's nice about it is that it allows you to engage in this sparring, which can be heated, but then you still walk away as friends. The, what I liked about it was that there's a very important life lesson about being able to walk away friends or forms the way you behave on CNN all the time. <laughs> As you know, Michael, those green rooms are places where you kind of leave everything that was said uh, on TV kind of there. You leave it on set because uh, in the green room uh, is where we still are friends. You're friends with the Kaylee McEnany's of the world, the Kellyanne Conway's of the world, et cetera. Um, th those were all people that, um, you know, came in and out the set and you go on and whether or not it's Rick Stenson or what, you have a verbal sparring. Um, and you, you, you leave it there and you move forward. So yeah, that, that jiving helped me cultivate a skill set that's, that's very healthy and very, um, helpful. Um, not just in, uh, not just on TV, but also in the courtroom, because that's what you find yourself in a lot of times when you're representing a client, um, or, or fighting for justice, you have that legal jousting as well. Yeah. So I would love to start talking about your family a little bit because, they they informed your behavior as much as this jiving with your friends did. So tell us a bit about your your mom. You call her sort of the the, the strongest member of the family. And in fact, you have a chapter in the book which is entitled "Why Are the Strongest Women in the World Dying?" So talk a little bit about your mom and 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 women generally in the African American community as you as you see them. Yeah. So um, you know I. My mom, I, I, that book was relatively, I'm not sure my, the right word is cathartic or therapeutic. Um, don't know if those are quite interchangeable, but it, it was a little bit of both for me because I was able to uh, learn a lot about myself um, and the way that I analyze my closest relationship. One of the relationships that I delve into probably the deepest was that with my mom and, um, you know, talking about mental illness um, talking about the movement, talking about her strength in carrying a family and carrying a load that oftentimes didn't get the respect. Um, like a lot of wives and, um, uh, mothers don't necessarily get the, um, get the same respect that they deserve or get the same value for their, um, uh, contributions that they deserve. And in writing this book, I recognize that, um, Throughout my maturation, I realized that she um, she was a true hero whose story needed to be told as well. I mean, whether or not it was being a part of the first integrating class of Hamilton High School in um, Memphis, Tennessee, or just being there while my father was in prison, or 
uh, raising a family while my father um, had a felony on his record, being the breadwinner. I mean, all of those things. Um, uh, you know, that chapter was dedicated not just to her, but I talk about my aunt, Judy Marie uh, Sellers, who was the matriarch of our family, who, um, you know, my dad had to have the conversation with her when she was 90 years old to get her from, keep her from driving. Um, you know, but she was somebody who made sure our family had everything that we needed. I talked about Aunt Florence, who I lived with in Washington, D.C. While I was working for Jim Clyburn, and Aunt Florence was the one who taught me how to shave. Um, and I talked about my wife in that chapter as well, because we talked about African-American female mortality. Um, but I wanted to kind of have a, a full d- display of, you know, array of ages, array of backgrounds, array of contributions that show the strength of black women in a story that's oftentimes untold. Yeah. And it, I, I think in the end of that chapter, you write, or maybe it's the very beginning, I can't recall, it says, I'm going to read it to you. It says about um, women, uh, African-American women, you say, carrying the burden of loving your neighbors when they don't love you requires strong arms, which is just brilliant, I think. Yeah. Um, that was one of my, the, the best chapter, the best chapter that I wrote was, uh, um, um, I'm trying to think. The best chapter that I wrote, the, the most well-written chapter in terms of just this artistic value was the, the first chapter about uh, the city of Denmark, able to paint pictures that people could see, um, try to give the smells, um, the, the flavors of the city from the wee bakery, et cetera. Um, so that's, that was the most w- well-written chapter. Uh, this chapter on Black women was probably um, one of my favorite but most difficult ones. Um, and then, um, last but not least, I will say that the chapter on anxiety was probably the one that's been the most important to many people who pick up the book and read it. Yeah. So I'd like to hold anxiety just for sure. a minute, um, because it, it is so important, um, to talk about mental health issues as frankly as, as, as you did, we all suffer from it in one way or another, most of us are in denial, um, so it was just breath refreshing, um, a breath of fresh air to, to hear you, you speak about it. But I want to, before we turn to that, I, I'd like you, you said about your mom, she was our rock and she had to take care of us when my dad was in jail and had a felony. Well, let's, let's talk about how your dad comes to have a felony um, because it's, it's, you know, cause he's a civil rights icon and he yeah. has a felony for uh, essentially no good reason, but a damn good reason at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, my father um, actually was arrested. Um, he was arrested multiple times. My father's actually in prison, not once, but twice. Uh, well, the first time was in Atlanta, Georgia, when he, um, when he refused to uh, win draft and go to Vietnam. Um, he was one of many people who um, said that that wasn't, um, you know, their calling. That wasn't what uh, they felt was right or just. Um, the second time was a more violent episode in, on the campus of South Carolina State um, in February of 1968, when my father, along with 27 others, was wounded and three young men, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton, were, were shot and killed um, by South Carolina State troopers. Uh, that night after they protested, uh, this was the second day they protested, the first day on the 6th, the second day on the 8th, uh, they protested the All-Star Bowling Alley in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. Um, and um, uh, that night after they went back to their campus, South Carolina State Troopers lined up along the embankment in front of their campus and fired shots into the group of students. It, it killed um, those three and wounded 28. And ironically, uh, or maybe unironically, um, all of those officers were, it was the first time in um, American history that law enforcement officers have been charged with federal civil rights crimes um, for shooting um, black folk. And they were all tried and they were all found not guilty. They actually arrested my father, um, charged my father and tried him. They originally had him charged with five felony counts, looking at a maximum of 75 years in prison. Um, they went in during the middle of the trial, they ended up I backdated the indictment from February uh, 8th to February 6th, and he was charged, tried, and convicted of rioting. And he effectively became the first and only one-man riot in the history of this country 
Um, he was sentenced to a year of hard labor. And um, um, my sister, all of our names are Swahili, um, Bakari is Swahili for Noble Promise. My sister's name is Nosizwe Apademe, and Apademe um, is Swahili. It means born while father's away. Uh, she was born while my father was uh, incarcerated. And so that's when we tell the story about the strength of not just my dad, but that of my mom as well. We talk about carrying that burden. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not much younger than, than your dad. And so I was in the 11th grade when um, the Orangeburg massacre occurred. So I remember it because it was Orangeburg, Kent State, Jackson State. Right. Um, that was sort of the, 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 the straight line of, of police shooting uh, unarmed students protesting injustice. And, and, and your dad, um, interestingly, I think on the night of the uh, incident, was there to say, Let's, we've got to move from this place. This is a dangerous place to be. It's night. Um, the police are down the hill. We're up the hill. Um, but they targeted him. Um, yeah. They targeted him because he was speaking a language of, of, of empowerment that they found threatening, is, is, is my read of it. That's correct. I mean, my, my father, and I talk about this in the book a lot. Um, it's not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but uh, my father looked eerily like, um, actually look, looks like I look today with my hair and my, my beard, but he also looked like Henry Smith, um, who was one of the young men who was killed that night. He was only one person shot in the head. Um, you know, my father was a member of SNCC. Um, you know, he served under both um, uh, John Lewis and Marion Barry. Um, my father was there uh, to, to help students learn um, and to try to try to uh, cultivate on college campuses uh, this pan-Africanism or Afri Africana studies, as they called it. Um, and it was more about just ensuring that individuals had the opportunity to learn about their history, their own self-worth, you know, all of these things. And so it was a very, very um, uh, unique experience, um, uh, to, to say the least. And he was actually asleep. Uh, when they started the protest on the 8th um, and was awakened and came out. And at that time, yeah, he, my father's someone who always believed he learned from his um, efforts in SNCC that you don't protest at night. Uh, he's, that's something he tells me to tell, you know, some of my friends in Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Um, and so he, he was someone who said, let's, let's wrap this up because people, his saying and, and the saying of, of uh, many um, in SNCC um, was that you, people do, under the cover of darkness, what they would not otherwise do during the day. And uh, on that night, unfortunately, he proved to be eerily correct. He was shot in the shoulder, went to the infirmary, um, patched up, given a $50,000. No, excuse me, his bond was denied, housed on death row. A couple of weeks later, given a $50,000 bond. Um, and his life was forever altered. Yeah, yeah. And your life was forever altered. You, you say in the book that... On the night of February 8th, 1968, essentially your life began, although um, you, you weren't born until 1984. Yeah. But, but this, 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 there were sort of two pillars in, 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 in your, as I read it, there are sort of two pillars in your life. There is this, which I think is uh, paramount and primary. And then sometime uh, down the line, uh, we get to uh, Charleston. Yeah. And, 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 and the murders in, 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 in that, in that church. And, and those two events seem, Bakari, to me, to have allowed you to crystallize what becomes your, your mission, as you, as, as you, as you call it, and, and why you're here and what, you know, you are endeavoring to do. So maybe um, we've talked a bit about uh, Greensboro and your dad, and we'll weave it through because you refer to him properly. So, as, as your hero, you say um, it was sort of wonderful growing up with your hero in, in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, glad to know he was in the kitchen, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, that's unique, unique to our family that the, the men usually cook. So that, that was a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about um, uh, Charleston, because, as I said, I think of these things. I'm trying to say, who is Bakari Sellers and, and, and what you know, sort of informed his, his thinking. And I, as I read the book, there are lots of things, but these two events are really profoundly important to you. 
So, yeah, I, I think that I think you analyze it in the correct way. And I think that when you look at um, I, I would tell people that my life has been somewhat bookmarked or bookend. Bookend is probably the better term by tragedy. And I think that when you describe the experience of being black in this country, I just think that my story is not uh, unfortunately atypical. I think it's typical when you have these instances that put you in this perpetual state of grieving, um, which is for lack of a better term, the experience of being black. And um, I, I, Charleston was just such a um, devastating, traumatic, yet crystallizing moment for me in that um, I remember standing in front of uh, Mother Emanuel Amy Church um, the Sunday after uh, the, the Charleston Massacre. It's very easy to remember what day that happened. It was because it was Bible study, and everybody knows Bible study is on Wednesday nights. And so the shooting happened on Wednesday night. Um, and on that Sunday, my dad and I were doing, which is a very rare, we don't do a lot of them, um, which was a, a joint interview between he and I. Um, and uh, Melissa Harris-Perry, who at that time was the host of MSNBC's on Sunday mornings. Um, and Joy Andrew subsequently replaced her, but it was Melissa Harris-Perry then. And I just remember echoing the sentiment that for me, it was a unique feeling because my father was 70 and at the time I was 30, but we had many of the same shared experiences. And I just felt that that was a tragic indictment on uh, where we were in our country and our country's history. Um, you know, Clem was very close to me. My last event in 2014, when I was running for um, uh, um, lieutenant governor, uh, was at not Mother Emanuel, but another church that Clem had in in Colleton County in St. George. We had a fish fry in his church, and um, you know, when, when I got elected, I was 22. When Clem got elected to the state senate, he was 25, um, and so uh, we had this, and, and our districts overlapped. So I literally. Uh, we represented many of the same areas. And so we worked together hand in hand on many issues for a very long period of time. Uh, and so just to hear um, as it was as the and I give the TikTok of the timeline of what happened in the book from my perspective, because I was actually there, Michael, uniquely enough with another young lady who I love and adore. Her name was Hillary Clinton. And we were all together at a fundraiser that night, because if people go back to 2016, um, or excuse me, 2015, in that summer, you know, that everybody was gearing up to run for president of the United States. And uh, Secretary Clinton was in Charleston. Rick Santorum was in Charleston. Marco Rubio was in Charleston. All the media was there. Uh, we had a huge fundraiser for her. And while I was leaving the fundraiser, this happened. I was probably two blocks away uh, when this occurred. And so it was just a, a weird convergence of, of, of um it was a weird convergence of, of events. It was a weird convergence of trauma. It was a weird convergence of hate at that one time. And uh, uniquely enough, um, you know, our state grew from it. Um, we, we made some progress from it. Um, Clem and the other eight, uh, the eight others, they, they live, uh, they live with us and in our spirit for a very long period of time. I was just with Kate Baldwin. We, we get, we um, did a presentation at a, Horace Mann, I think that's the name of the school, big private school in New York City yeah. recently and um, recapped an interview that that um, Kate gave me outside um, on the death penalty. It was one of the toughest, but well, well done interviews I'd, I'd ever been a part of. Uh, and it was just so many different ins and outs. I remember it was so hot in Charleston and you would soak through shirts daily. I remember the day that, that we found out in less than 24, 48 hours that they had arrested, arrested Dylan. Uh, you compare Dylan's arrest to, you know, that of George Floyd. I mean, there's just so many different uh, ins and outs. Um, Dylan Roof having the hate in his heart to go into a church and commit this act after praying with that family or with those parishioners for, for an hour. So uh, Charleston is something that lives with us a lot like Orangeburg. And I guess my the only thing I wish is that more people knew and were able to learn the lessons from Orangeburg and maybe enough people will learn the lessons from Charleston that it won't be repeated. Yeah. And the thing about Dylan Roof and, and the murders in that church, which speak to sort of the love in the heart of the African-American community and, and, and the poison in, in, in Dylan Roof's heart is this, this kid, this straggly white kid walks into a church, an African-American church, unknown to anybody the the um, the pastor 
pastor or reverend uh-huh. um, seats him right next to him. Says, Correct. you know, you, you come here, you know, in, in a Jesus-like way, you come here, my child, and sit with me. Right. And they pray for an hour. And then right. when they close their eyes at benediction at the end, uh-huh. pulls out a gun and he, and he shoots them in cold blood. Correct. He shot, he shot Clem in the neck. And as the story goes, I mean, a lot of, like, a, there are a lot of people don't know the full breadth of the story. So I'll share it with you, Michael, since it's just you and I up here talking. Um, so the first thing is he shot him in the neck. Clem was the only person who actually made it alive for a little while. He actually made it to um, the hospital. We sent state Senator Marlon Kempson over to um, the hospital. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't know if he actually got in, but he was there to kind of check on the scenario. Um, let, later let us know that, that Clement died. Um, he stood over a, a woman in the church. Her name was Polly Shepherd. There were, there were three other quote unquote survivors of the massacre who were at the Bible study who uh, made it out, stood over Polly and, and said, I want somebody to be able to tell the story. So he let, let them leave. Um, what is not told um, um, is that Jennifer, Clem's wife, was actually in the pastor's office. She locked herself in the room. Clem's oldest daughter, uh, who ironically enough has just uh, won uh, uh, homecoming queen and student council president uh, in high school. So she she is, we, we lift her up all the time and um, cheer for them from afar and, you know, love on them. Uh, they have a whole whole network of individuals who try to, you know, you never fill in the gap of a father, but we do the best that we can. And so it was a lot going on that night, but Clem went out the way we, we would all expect him to, which is to go out with that loving arm of, of gratitude and, um, you know, attempting to uh, welcome uh, Dylan into the church. Yeah. You, you write, um, again, there are, there are parts of this book um, that made me, made me laugh out loud, the, the jiving stuff. And as that jiving, I, I just wanted to say, as I thought about it, I was wanting to say to you, because I know you get teased a lot about your basketball game. Well, um, I'm way better than people uh, want it. First of all, I'm still an all-star at Lifetime Fitness right now. So I just want you to know. <laughs> yeah. You were six foot five at age 15. So there were, there were great expectations of you, but, but you get teased a lot about your, your sorry basketball game. And, 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 and um, I was thinking, you know, if we were to do this jiving, I, I w- would I be saying that your fellow Morehouse graduate uh, Spike Lee, were he to make a movie of your basketball game would be, he got no game. <laughs> yeah. Don't give Spike any ideas. Uh, <laughs> but but, but so some things made me laugh and some things made me, made me cry. And, and in, in this, you write, my early knowledges of the injustices of the civil rights era, and, and I, I include Charleston um, in that, has left me with a heavy heart, but also with hope and a mission. And, and that is what I found, you know, sort of so uplifting uh, in, in the multiple messages that are in, in the book. And maybe we can, you know, sort of segue a little bit to, to your mission of helping heal the nation's divide. Uh, and, and start with at age, uh, you can start in Morehouse where you're running for office, but maybe in the interest of time, let's start with your decision to run for the, the state legislature in South Carolina as a uh, uh, 21-year-old. Yeah, I don't think I knew any better, uh, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I was a person, uh, I was a dog that caught the submarine, um, but I wanted to change the world, um, I think, like a lot of young people. And I just asked my t- myself two really simple questions. If not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And it's so funny because people, you know, they always wait. And there were so many people who were waiting. You know, they were all, uh, they wanted to replace Thomas Rowe, but nobody ran against them. Um, and I, so I jumped everyone who was on county council, everyone who was on city councils, the mayors, and just ran for office. And, you know, I recognized that my city was, uh, my community, not just sitting, my community was declining, not just, um, uh, stagnantly, um, but it was it was declining <laughs> rapidly, uh, and so I just figured that that I could be a part of the change. And we got fifty five percent of the vote. Um, I ran against uh, Thomas Rowe. He was eighty two years old. Had been in office twenty six years, which was longer than I had been born. I was twenty one when I announced. Twenty two when I took my seat. At the time, I was the youngest black elected official in the country and the youngest state legislator in the country. Um, there are two kind of cool things. One is you know being that young. Um, uh, and being from Denmark, you know, it's a very poor town. I mean, who would have 
who would have ever guessed that someone uh, from a poor city like Denmark, poor country city like Denmark would be able to make that type of national history. Um, that's one and two. Um, the agitator's son became a legislator. Um, and I just think that's a pretty cool story to tell. Um, yeah, here. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story. And you did, and you did accomplish lots of, lots of things. Um, and um, you ended up um, serving several uh, consecutive terms, but then decided to run uh, for lieutenant governor, um, which uh, Congressman Clyburn, Clyburn counseled you against. Uh, and maybe we could tell tell a little bit about. The, I mean, it's I heard an interview with you and um, Mayor Pete. Yeah, and, and and it was a great interview. And, and each of you were talking about not being willing to wait your turn. And of course, uh, number forty four wasn't willing to wait his term and became the president of the United States uh, for for two terms. But 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 you you're, so you're serving in the state legislature and you go to Clyburn, who you've, you've known as a family friend, and you say. What? Well, you know, we you have to in politics, you have to dot your eyes and cross your T's. And so um, the highest ranking, um, you know, member uh, of the Dem- uh, Democratic member of the of the, the delegation, uh, someone who was is well respected in the state, got some time, went and sat on his sofa and told him I was going to run for the run for lieutenant governor. I was trying to be the first African-American elected statewide in South Carolina since 1876. Uh, and to which he responded that. Um, if uh, if somebody could win statewide, I would, I would have already done it. And so, you know, I just took that response for what it was. South Carolina was a, uh, is a very difficult, challenging um, uh, state. We're not anywhere near Virginia. Um, we're not close to being uh, uh, North Carolina. And we're still running behind Georgia in terms of demographic changes. And, and, and we saw that most recently, Michael, as you know, in the race of Jamie Harrison. So... Uh, you know, we ran, we gave everything we had, and uh, Tim Scott was able to claim that mantle of history, and I, I have a great deal of respect for Tim. Yeah, yeah, although his politics are different. less than I would like them yeah. to be. But <laughs> different, to say the least. Yeah, they're different. So this is where um, I'd like to, to to turn to anxiety, in a sense, because you, you, you have had it since a young age. Um, I think you trace it back to uh, your friend Al's death mm-hmm. by a heart attack at age 13, which is a hard way to learn about life and, and death, but it's it, it's carried through with you. And it's interesting to me that notwithstanding it, you're a public person uh, um, who is running for elective office and who is putting out putting yourself out every day on, on, on television. And I thought it was incredibly um, revealing um, and almost the most heartfelt part of the book. It must've been, you, you used the word cathartic earlier. This must've been really hard to write. Um, you know, as a person who deals with many of those same issues, articulating it to myself in my mind is, is hard enough, but writing it on paper. And, you know, this is a New York Times bestseller. So everyone looks at you and now says, well, there's that anxious guy. Yeah, I know. Every, <laughs> everybody's a, a, a therapist now. They all look at me and, and say, oh, you must be. You're not having any anxiety today, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it still is a challenge, you know, trying to practice mindfulness and, and be able to uh, get those thoughts in your head that come often. And uh, they say, treat them like clouds that, you know, pass by. But um, you know, that chapter was geared towards like one demographic, one subset of a demographic. It was geared towards black men who have a, a large amount of mental health issues, but they're, they're never really dealing with them. And so, um, you know, I wanted to be open and, and show people that uh, regardless of everything, the highs and successes and accomplishments one may have, you also may have other issues that you deal with that. And, and it's important to um, talk through those issues and, and open yourself up and allow people to kind of peek through the glass and um, and allow people to um, uh, uh, be able to, to build a um, or formula, formulate a pattern or path after you to get the type of help that they may need. Yeah, I, and I think that I think what you know is instructive to all of us who similarly um, are, are afflicted is to, to to say it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to 
embrace and you know with loving kindness uh, to yourself and 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 to move forward um of course and i think during this i mean i think during this period that we're going through right now i mean if you didn't if you didn't come out of 2020 with something going on in in between your ears some type of angst or worry then i i don't know um so i just hope people come out of you know going to 2021 uh, you know mentally physically and emotionally stronger than they went in yeah yeah so um we're sort of at the halfway point more or less and i'd like to um talk to you about you um because i love you for forever but i'd like to talk about um race and politics a bit too you you write in the book um that um you were you able to write volume two of this book, um, you would address race and religion. And, you, and, you, and, you, and you've talked about um, how when you first wanted to write a book, which was going to be a more political book, the publishers didn't really have much interest in it. But when they heard the Macari Sellers story, um, they said, oh, this is a, this is a, a bestseller in, in, in waiting. But so I'd like to jump ahead to what will be in, in volume two, which I'm hoping in this pandemic, you're following your own advice and writing 15 minutes a day on, 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 on volume two. Um, I haven't, I am, I'm outlining volume two. It's due, uh, it's due to the publishers and I want to say uh, April or May. So we are, we are beginning that process and we'll start that process in earnest next week. So, good. Um, good. So, but, you know, so we, I'm looking forward for you to, to, to come back, but interesting to me when, when I read your book, it was sort of in the middle of a series of books I was reading. I, I had just finished um, the book Cast the Origins Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson, a must read. And then I read Eddie Gloud Jr.'s um, Begin Again book on um, And I didn't realize that James Baldwin was um, active in SNCC mm-hmm. back in, in the earliest uh, days as well. And then, and then your book comes in, in, in the middle and all of them essentially are talking in, in different language, but thematically about the caste system in America and, and how um, ingrained racism, systemic racism is in um, the DNA of, of America and sort of what, it will require to sort of make progress against it. So can you start about this um, systemic racism and how you, how you, I mean, you, you, I say, I say to people about Bakari, I said two things about him. One is damn, he's tall. And then two, (laughs) um, notwithstanding all of the, not, notwithstanding all of these things, I think of him as a person who still keeps love in his heart, which I don't understand how you do it. But um, but talk a little bit about um, the the issue of, of of race and ingrained race and caste, if you don't mind, if you feel comfortable. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that the, I think that the, that's a really good question. It's a loaded question, but a good one. I think that you have to start with framing and understanding the definition thereof, right? And so. Um, I always tell people that racism is not when somebody calls me nigger. I get that enough. I mean, all you got to do is go look at my Twitter feed, right? Or when I get off TV, I go on Wolf this evening at 6. So at about 6.15, 6.20, they'll call me everything but a child of God. Um, always happens. But that's not, that's not racism. That's ignorance. That's not racism. Um, Stokely Carmichael, um, and I can't say Stokely too loud because you'll hear the pitter-patter of little feet around the corner. But Stokely Carmichael um, defined it as this. He said that... Uh, if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. But if you have the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Because racism is a power construct. And when you understand that racism is um, a, a power construct, right? Um, when you understand that, that racism um, uh, is, in, is systemic, it, it's not just those person-to-person interactions. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, it means that, uh, you know, Black folk live in communities where they don't have access to clean water um, or breathe in. Um, unhealthy air, um, where, where you don't have access to quality health care, where you're punished because of the zip code you're born into. We already know that we have, um, uh, where you already know that we have uh, a criminal justice system that's in tatters. 
those are the systems that we're talking about that we have to deconstruct. Now, Michael, I also have to tell you this, like, um, Donald Trump didn't invent racism and we have some intellectually dishonest and intellectually lazy people on the left, just like the right who want to act like this is a phenomenon. And a lot of my progressive friends who want to act like this is just a new phenomenon that on January 20th at noon will automatically be wiped away. And that just ain't the way it goes. Right. Um, the, the thing that we have to remember about Trumpism is I go back to Charlottesville and Michael, I'll pose this question to you. What is, um, what to you was the most amazing moment or the moment, maybe not amazing, but the moment that stuck out to you the most about Charlottesville? Well, for me, the most amazing moment was the welcoming of Dylan Roof into the, into the church, into the community with loving their heart. The parishioners love not, not Charleston, Charlottesville, Charlotte, the Charlottesville Charlottesville, Virginia, when they had the best. Of oh, both. in Charlottesville. Sorry. Um, uh, the, the whole thing was um, uh, unbelievable to me, but the notion of people walking with torches <laughs> at night on that campus, um, screaming anti-Semitic and anti um, uh, and racist um, chants uh, in that number of people was eye-opening to me. Yeah, I, I would say, yes, that was eye-opening. But the most eye-opening thing was that they did it and didn't wear masks or hoods. And so the unique part about race in this country now is that people can have those thoughts, can yell those things and not cover their faces. They, can, they don't have to worry about shame. They can be unashamed. And these, people, these aren't people who live in their mother's basements. Instead, two of those individuals, ironically enough, were loan officers at Wells Fargo. They got dismissed from their jobs because uh, of their participation. So when you think about all of these things, as you put them together, what racism is, structural racism, this kind of unabashed feeling, and now you have uh, arsonists in the White House um, putting, uh, putting um, gasoline on those flames, you end up with where we are in this political process. You combine that with the 24-hour news cycle, the fact that people don't talk anymore in social media, and you have a country that is um, holding on or, or, you know, like 1968, quickly becoming untethered. Yeah, but but the thing I think that you addressed in the book in which um, Cass talks about it being not just a matter of systems, uh, Jim Crow laws or, 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 or lynchings or um, separate but equal and all that stuff, but it being a, a state of a state of mind, which had me, you know, put me to, to thinking as, as a, you know, as a white person, you, you have to think about the, the, these things, if you want to be part of the solution. And I read um, Robin DiAngelo's um, mm. book, um, White Fragility. Uh-huh. Have, you, have you seen that? Yes. Um, and, and, and she writes that, uh, and, 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 and Isabel Wilkerson talks about uh, hierarchies and castes and people in roles and how you don't get to come out of the role that you were born into as if we were untouchables in, in India. And, and she writes, uh, Robin DiAngelo writes, in white fragility, why it's so hard for people, for white people to talk about racism. She says, white people are unused to unpleasantness. Racial hierarchies tell white people they are entitled to peace and deference. And she goes on to say that the worst of them are the, the, the progressives who are so busy trying to convince everybody that they're, they've been awakened or are woke that... Yeah. That's 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 their that that's their sole that's their sole mission. Um, I would agree. I mean, I I, I you know I, I always told people that um, you know that this issue, this entanglement that we have ourselves in uh, on the issues of race, is not one that that we find ourselves uh, tripping us up on just the the right, but it also trips us up on the left and you have this new performance art, which is known as, I call it performative justice, where people want to act as if uh, that this is something, uh, a moment that they're in and not, and, it, and it's not a movement that uh, consumes them or that, that, they, that they live with. Um, and so um, when you understand the issues of race and um, supremacy um, and patriarchy, um, then you begin to understand those relationships. And I guess the, one of the better examples I can give you, Michael, is I talked about this with um, Margaret Hoover on Firing Line, um, PBS, and she was talking to me about the the conversations I have with my daughter 
um, when I, you know, pushed back and I was telling her that the most important conversations are not the ones that I have with my daughter about how to interact with law enforcement, but the most important conversations are that what she's having with her children in her house, how, how white folk interact with their children at home. I mean, those are the most important conversations. How are you teaching your children to give my children the benefit of their humanity? Yeah. Yep. And, and uh, in, in the end of those books, she says, white fragility holds racism in place. The, the unwillingness to address these, these issues honestly and in the historic context in which they arise. Because they, as you properly say, they just didn't arrive in 2016. And, and they're not going away on January 2021. Um, at 1201, they're, 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 they're the, the, that's what this country was built on. Yeah. And I do think that it's probably not fair to Wilkerson to put them in the same category as Robin D'Angelo. It was a decent book, but uh, Isabella Wilkerson's book is um, one of those books as someone who just wrote a book, um, I tell, I say this with every ounce of humility. Uh, Wilkerson's book is like 14 times better than mine. <laughs> it's just, they're, they're, diff- they're different. I wouldn't say better or worse. I'd say they're different. But I, I just, I hope those individuals watching that that's some self-awareness that I do have. Um, I hope those people watching do, do understand that Wilkerson's book is cast as a, is a book that is um, set, set aside and should be interpreted kind of on its own right and merit. Yeah, no. And that's right. And I don't mean to, put them um, as, as equals or um, of course, yeah. parallelism, but, but it's just, the, it's the first, White Fragility was the first book where a, a white author was talking about race to white people to say, you know, essentially snap out of it. Um, you, you, you can't, you can't be ostriches. Um, and you can't think that putting out a BLM sign on your lawn um, is, is the best you can do. I I agree with you. I mean, our goal shouldn't be to make the person who makes yellow paint rich because everybody's around here painting BLM on all these streets. I mean, we should we should be focused on sincere policy changes that can effectuate a change that lessens the load and lessens the plight uh, of many people of color in this country. Yeah. And so the 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 question that I have in follow up to that is. Do we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Is is that what it, it, it. what is it going to take, I guess, Bakari, um, to have people address the the four hundred years of 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 caste in our system and the and the mindset of entitlement and disenfranchisement that that it is, you know, sowed into our um, into our society and into our states of mind. So I'm not somebody who's going to outwardly reject the truth and recreation, reconciliation commission, not outwardly. I'm just someone who's going to say, I'm not going to spend my energy on promoting that idea. And the reason being is because as you know, in the legislative process, commissions are where things go to die. A study commissions are where everything goes to die. I I just prefer us have, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that my friends on the left, when we talk about perpetuating these uh, kind of um, caste systems, is one of the worst political uh, uh, themes that anybody can ascribe to, which is um, rising tides lift all boats. I hate that. I, I think it's absurd. It's like patently ridiculous. It's insane for anyone who thinks that or believes that because there are people in our country who have holes in their boat or don't have access to a boat, right? So rising tides don't lift that. I mean, it's... No, some it's, people some people drown in rising tides. Exactly, exactly right. And so, you know, when you think about it, you, you can't legislate like that. Right. So and my friends on the left, I mean, Nancy did it with PPP and I love Nancy did it with PPP, not once, but twice. But you, you can't um, you can't have race neutral policy proposals to effectuate or affect change on race specific problems. You just simply can't. And until we have race specific policy, we, none of this really matters. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And it's interesting to me. Um, in 2015, you, you said that you were out at a, at a fundraiser um, with Secretary Clinton. You had chosen her as your primary uh, uh, candidate. I had chosen um, Sanders. Um, uh, and um, it's interesting to me that you observed that one of the reasons Denmark, South Carolina, not, not, not Denmark, South Dakota, 
one of the reasons Denmark, South Carolina died was because of NAFTA. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and Clinton and, and President Obama were big NAFTA and, and um, TPP proponents, which it, it, it struck me interesting that, that that's, that's the choice you made, uh, uh, recognizing how systemically these sort of global trade deals hurt um, your community. I mean, I... I mean, that's the funny way politics works. I mean, who would have ever guessed that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump would have the same political philosophy when it came to trade, right? I mean, they find themselves uh, uniquely in line when it comes to these things. And um <laughs> had a weird phone call one day. I was with my wife. We were down in Kiowa where we go vacation every year and uh, got a phone call from a Iowa number. thought it was a student loan company. It was Bill Clinton calling saying that the book was great. Like he just wanted to talk to me about the book and how life was going and all of those things. And um, you know, it was just, a. I think most people recognize in hindsight, uh, that the, that, the, that there were, um, there were no protections, um, for American workers and American manufacturing jobs. And, uh, those, you know, because there were no protections, there, there were cities and states and small towns like Denmark, which were left behind. And I guess that maybe that hindsight was 2020, but, um, at the end of the day, it really devastated our communities. Well, and but but it's it's emblematic of the systemic capital structures of our, our of our country. Um, it's just you said you said in in being chosen for Times forty forty. I think I read a quote that said something about moving beyond uh, racial issues to economic issues to economic disparity issues. Do you remember? Do, am I reading that right? Yeah. I, what I was attempting to say was that we have to, um, and one of the, one of my biggest disagreements with, um, one of my biggest disagreements with, um, Senator Sanders, for example, is that there was a fundamental disconnect on understanding the intersection of race and, and economics. And there was a thought that if you gave, if we gave everybody a check, if we remedied this economic inequity, then we could all, you know, be happy. And, and I just think that that on its, on its face is just flawed. Uh, you, you can look at Philando Castile, um, who did everything he was supposed to do, but was still murdered by police in his car. Um, and, and, you know, you, there are many, many, many instances like that that we, we see every day with our cell phones. And when you begin to analyze this, when you begin to look at it, there is this intersection of race and, um, and economics that we begin, we have to flesh out just that much more. Yeah, I, I think they are they are tied. I think Howard Zinn in the People's History of the United States talks eloquently about the relationship between race and economics and and how um, society broke apart people who should have had a collective common interest um, uh, by by dividing them on on race and, and and thereby allowing the economic system to to continue. But in in the remaining time, you mentioned something that we can't let go without talking about a bit, which is you said so-and-so and he still gets murdered by the police. And this whole um, notion of defunding the, the, the police has, has been in the news quite a lot. And, and, and Congressman Clyburn and um, uh, former President Obama, so on one sort of side of the discussion and um, AOC sort of sits on the other side of the discussion. She, they say, Clyburn said that if we hadn't talked about defund the police, we hadn't picked that slogan. And you said famously, Democrats are terrible at choosing slogans. But yeah. if, we, if we hadn't chosen defund the police, we may have had greater success in the down ticket um, elections in, in, in 2018. And, and Obama said... Um, that he believes in criminal justice reform and treating everybody uh, equally. But he says, you lose a big audience the minute you say defund the police. AOC replies, she says, polite language makes it easier to ignore. People did not do anything until they were made to feel uncomfortable. So where do you you stand in this, in the defund notion and then this little sort of disagreement about how to talk about it. 
So I think they're both like right and both wrong. Uh, defund the police is a horrible slogan. Democrats, Democrats suck at messaging, period. I mean, like, that is what it is. That's a terrible slogan. Um, but if anybody thinks that defund the police cost us races, then that's also just a cop out. I mean, I, I tell Jim that all the time. Like, look, you, we didn't lose the we didn't lose these races because of because of defund the police. We lost these races because Democrats run antiquated, out of touch campaigns. Um, you know, the way that we touch voters and contact voters or don't contact voters, uh, the way that we run campaigns from 2015 and 2010 and in 2020. Um, anytime you have AOC and Doug Jones. Right. I'm, I'm not necessarily someone who ascribes to AOC's outlook on the world, per se. I just think that it's a totally different being a Democrat from South Carolina and one from, you know, the inner city of New York. Um, but that's why we have a big tent party. But anytime Doug Jones and AOC agree on the methods that we should be employing and the fact that we don't employ those methods, then you should listen to it. And I just think that Jim and everyone else want to, uh, when you're in leadership like that, you kind of want to save your own. Um, skin by not um, really doing a, an autopsy on why you lost the race. I did a whole podcast with um, uh, Tom Bonier from, uh, uh, oh, I forget the name of this group, but he, he, um, he is someone who target, uh, target analytics. Um, and they, they went, they went through all of this and there's no, there's no analysis that says we lost because of defund the police. Should we have a different slogan? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the messaging behind defund the police. Correct. Yes. Um, and do we lose races because of that? No. And we just have to walk that path and begin to do that self-analysis because we won't. Uh, Jim and everybody else probably won't be in house leadership in 2022 if we don't do that necessary introspection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, we've talked about this a bit. Um, when I stepped back from being full-time CNNer, uh, I decided that Democracy in my little community needed some incubation, and I ran for the advisory neighborhood commission. The, Congratulations the, on your big victory there. Yeah, oh, my big, oh, my local, big. My local elections matter. Well, they do matter, I mean, and we have a task force on racism, and we're dealing with um, overcrowding in our schools, and there are potholes that need to be filled. But interestingly, um, having read your book and 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 read others about it, my wife and I knocked on every door in our um, single member district almost three times because we decided that the only way you can win an election these days is by personal contact. Correct. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I call it the Jimmy Carter style of campaigning and uh, Democrats don't value that anymore. I told Raphael Warnock in Georgia, if you're not knocking on doors, you're going to lose this race. Yeah. Yeah. Cost me an MRI to my back and, and, and and a new pair, (laughs) a new pair of souls, but, 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 you know, that's the way we did it. So you, you write as a concluding part of our um, conversation, and I am looking forward to part two, and I promise I'll invite you if you promise you'll, you'll say yes uh, when volume two comes out. But you write, my task is to live for the people who have died at the hands of the law, Michael Brown, Terrence Crutcher, Sandra Bland, and many others. I see them as, as martyrs, and your responsibility is to give voice to those who no longer have a voice. And I, I can say I am incredibly grateful for your voice generally, and I'm particularly grateful uh, for your, your voice um, uh, today. And I wanted to give you sort of the last word to give us, you know, sort of um, something to, to take us forward to the, into the new year with. Well, I just hope people spend this time and enjoy it with family. There was so much that we would always say if we had the time to do, we would do it. And God has slowed us down in the past few months uh, with this pandemic. And so take this time, use it wisely. Um, and then um, I hope that we come out with a new, a new spirit in January 2021, when invigorated, focused on change, improving the plight of others, um, become more selfless, uh, more giving, um, more believing not in what this country was or what it is, but what this country can be. And last but not least, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you to your producer, Faye, and, and thank you to everyone who took time out to join us today. Well, thank you, Bakari. Um, happy New Year to you. I'm sorry. The only thing I'm sorry about is that we didn't get a, uh, a cameo from <laughs> and, and, and Stokely, but uh, we'll do that in, 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 in part two. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. 
That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Let us know your thought by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Zeldin. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.